Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Going back to the book of John chapter 13. So we have been talking about in this series, living the life of a disciple, going through scripture, understanding what Jesus clearly meant when he said about going to make disciples of all people. What does that look like? What is a disciple? How do you become one? Are you one when you get born again? No. When you get born again, what are you? You're going through conversion stage. You're a convert. So Jesus said, you must be converted. And after conversion, as you continue to live in the epistles, letters written to the New Testament church, our new covenant, when we live in those letters, Paul said that you become a living letter, an epistle. And then if you continue to develop and grow in your walk with God, and you do the things that Jesus talked about relating to the new man on the inside, you're just bringing out what's already in you. And when you begin to walk out those very, the light of those very truths of who God made you to be, then you become what? A disciple. And a disciple is somebody who is truly disciplined. They are looking like their Savior. Jesus said, Luke 6, if you're uh, trained as a disciple, you'll be like them. Well, we're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to talk like him, act like him, walk like him. A lot of people claim to be Christians, Christ followers, and don't seem to look too much like Jesus. But thank God we can. I want to go through, as we've been talking about the characteristics of a disciple, let me walk you really quick through the first five. We've already touched on the first five characteristics of a disciple. The first one's found in John 8.31. In John 8.31, these are all statements from Jesus directly about what a disciple is or a disciple isn't. In Luke, uh, John, excuse me, in John 8.31, he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. He goes on to say, you'll know the truth, verse 32, and the truth to do what? It'll set you free. So what's the first characteristic of a disciple? They abide in the Word. They live in the Word. They are hungry for the Word. They understand the significance of that Word to change their life, transform their life. And therefore, they don't just quote-unquote visit the Bible once in a while. They live in it. They live in it for relationship to the King. Amen? Amen. Number two, the second one we found was in Luke 14, 26. In the chapter of Luke 14, there are several key things that he talks about being a disciple there. The first one he said, you can't love your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children, and your own life. More than you love Jesus, if you do, you cannot be my disciple. So the second characteristic of a disciple is what? Jesus is your first love. You don't love any other people more than you love Jesus. Because if you did again, you would wind up not serving him. You would wind up serving other people. Then the third characteristic is found in that same chapter, Luke 14, verse 27. And he talks about, therefore, if you and I will take up our cross, he says, he who does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. So that third characteristic, as we prove to you through Jesus' own life, what does it mean to bear our cross? To fulfill the Father's will. So the third characteristic of a disciple is they live like Jesus, to fulfill the Father's will. Jesus came here with one express purpose. Go to that cross. Go fulfill the Father's will. He talked about it over and over and over again. For us to bear our cross, obviously we're going to do what? Fulfill God's will 
for our life. And just a quick statement about that. Again, a lot of people say, well, bearing your cross is crucifying the old man. Well, you'll never take up God's will if you don't do like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and deny the old nature first. Amen? In that garden, he said, Father, if there's some other way, let this, uh, uh, you know, be done some other way, but not my will be done, your will. So he already denied self before he ever got to the cross. You and I understand we can't fulfill walking out the new man, the Father's will, without denying that old nature. But that is really what we're doing as we're walking in that new nature. It goes on in Luke 14 in the, in the remaining uh, verses of that chapter. And the fourth characteristic of a disciple, he said, you got, he who's not willing to forsake all cannot be my disciple. So the fourth characteristic, a disciple is willing to forsake anything to walk with Jesus. You're not going to walk with Jesus and continue to do all the things you did before you got born again because clearly you weren't walking with Jesus then. So there's going to be some things you're going to have to forsake if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. I had to get rid of some friends. I had to get rid of some activities in my life, some things I was doing, other things that was hindering my walk with God. So we looked at this clearly in the book of Hebrews. tells you to get, uh, to get rid of, lay aside every weight. And in any aspect of willful sin, that's hindering you in walking with Jesus. So if I'm willing to lay down things that are going to hinder my walk with God, I'm going to become a stronger disciple because of it. But if I'm not willing to forsake things that he shows me I need to let go of, how can I get closer to Jesus? You can't. So a disciple is willing to forsake what? All to follow after Jesus. And then the last one that we looked at is, was also found over here in the book of John. And it's actually talking about relating to John 15, what you do if you abide in him. Remember the differences I showed you there in those first six verses? So he says, if you abide in me in the latter part of those verses, and my word abides in you, you'll ask what you desire and it might be done. No, he said, it shall be done of my father, right? And he said, he said, in doing so, he said, you are a disciple of mine bearing much fruit. So a disciple, obviously, in bearing much fruit is doing what? They're walking by faith, not by sight. If you abide in Jesus and his word abides in you, faith comes by hearing by the... So clearly he says that you can ask what you desire and it shall be done. That means you're walking by faith. Disciples like Jesus get results. If you're praying and you're not getting results, you need to understand a little bit more about the Word and develop a little more as a disciple and understanding Scripture as how it works in your life to help you walk by faith. Amen? So a disciple walks by faith, not by sight, because they get results. If you're walking by sight, you're not going to walk by faith. You're not going to get results. John 13. So here we are in the sixth characteristic that we're really focusing some extra time and attention on, and I'm going to show you again why it's so important today. John, six, uh, John 13, picking up in verse 34. John 13, verse 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you, you should have this underlined, that you love one another as I, as I, as I have loved you. How are you supposed to love one another? As I have loved you, that you also do what? Love one another. 35, by this all will know. What will they know? They will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Have love for one another. Now, why did he say, if you have love for one another? Because clearly a disciple is going to do what? The characteristic we're talking about, number six, a disciple is going to walk in the love of God. How many know there are some Christians that don't? That that love's in them. I shouldn't say Christian. I really should say people born again because you're not walking Christ-like. But you know, you and I understand that to be a disciple, we also do what? We let love dominate our life. 
first fruit of the human spirit. And this love is so critical to everything else that pertains to your life on this planet, everything else that God does in your life. I mean, if you look at this, as we're going to see later in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of the chapter, the Bible says clearly now in this life, you're to abide in faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, love. Why? Because your faith won't work without it. You, you won't have an expectation, hope of good to come without the love of God. So understand, walking in love is critical to the believer. The love of God, as we're going to see as we go on in this tonight, the love of God is what causes us to function in the things God wants us to function in. It helps protect our life, as we're going to also see. There's many reasons why it's so significant to walk in the love of God. But clearly, he tells us here in verse 34 how we're to do this. Read it again. He said, notice, I give to you this commandment that you love one another. How? Tell me how. As I have loved you. So, to walk in the love of God as we're going through now, as we started on Wednesday night in this part of our series, to walk in the love of God, guess what we got to do? We got to know what that love looks like. Amen. He didn't just say walk in love. He said, you love one another as I have loved you. I mean, oh, God's love is different than the world's love. Yes, Far different. And oftentimes, even in religiosity, in context of religious circles, they might claim certain things that you do are the love of God, but yet in, in relationship to what Scripture reveals, doesn't necessarily always fit with the Bible. So as a church, and we've learned this for years in this church and what every believer should know, we just let the Bible interpret the Bible. We're not here to come up with my idea of what God's love looks like. We're not here to come up with your idea. So, you know, it's sad. I've had a, I, I had a recent situation where a guy comes to me and starts telling me all this stuff about end times and different things and all this stuff. And most of it was just speculation. Most of it, you can't back it up biblically, black and white with the Bible. And the whole point I tried to make was, well, you know what? If scripture's not clear about it, why are we trying to learn it? Why don't we focus on what Jesus said was significant? You know what Jesus said? What was the key thing Jesus said to me and you that was significant of the last days? Remember the first words out of his mouth in Matthew 24? Take heed that no one deceives you. And then he went on talking all kinds of stuff about the last days. Jesus talked more in the Gospels about the last days than the prophets. Really, of all the details that he, that he related to us, uh, than, than even more than the prophets did. The prophets had bits and pieces, but man, he gave us a whole bunch of stuff about the last days. So, we don't want to go by what we think the Bible, uh, me, we don't, don't want to go by what we believe the, in relationship to our own belief of what we think the love of God is. We just want to see what the Bible teaches about it. Amen? Amen. Go to 1 John 3. Right. One of the greatest two chapters in your Bible to study and read about love. I'll actually give you three chapters. We're going to look at all three of them this morning. It's 1 John 3 and 4 and 1 Corinthians 13, of course. 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter, uh, clearly defines that for us. Now, Romans 5, 5 tells us this love's already in us, right? It says very clearly that the love of God was shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit when you got born again. Say it's in there. So to walk in this love, it's already there. We just simply have to do what? We have to learn how to yield to it. We have to learn how to act upon it. And we have to learn how to let it dominate our life, which in fact, then we would be doing what? Letting our spirit dominate us. So I've already gone over some key things of what we've looked at in some other verses. We are defining for you now what the love of God looks like. Love one another, Jesus said, is what? I have loved you. So we've already looked at some other verses. I'll just catch you up real quick. Here's what we've already covered Wednesday night. The very first picture of what we see of God's love is love produces what? Obedience to God. 
Love produces obedience to God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So clearly love does what? Causes us to obey what we know scripture teaches us is right in the sight of God. So love is not just what we want to do in our life. Love does what? Motivates us to do what God says we're to do. If we're walking in the true love of God, we're walking in a form of obedience to what God desires for our life, which by the way is very good. The second thing Jesus taught us about love, very clear in Scripture, he told us this. He said that you and I got to know that if you have hatred in your heart towards another, guess what you're not doing? You're not walking in the light or in the love of God. So guess what love doesn't do? Doesn't hate. Love clearly does not hate. That doesn't mean you got to like everybody. There's a big difference between liking and loving. Can I get a better amen? You may not like what somebody does to you, but you can still walk in love toward them. I don't think Jesus liked what the Roman soldiers did to him. But you know what? He loved them. In spite of what they did, he loved them. So love doesn't hate. Hate means to abhor, to detest, or to despise. It really kind of has the connotation behind it of simply saying this, that you're out to get them. You're wanting to repay, repay them for what they've done to you, in essence. But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't retaliate. Love knows that there's a judge much higher than me. And I'm not going to go deal with people in relationship to stuff they do, they do in this life. If that needs to be dealt with, God will deal with that. So love does not hate. Say that. Another thing we found out about love. Now these are actually found here in 1 John 3 and 4. We've already looked at these. But the very purpose of what we recognize love is all about is found in verse 8 of chapter 4. Real quick, we'll look at that since we're so close. He who does not love does not know God for what? Tell me out loud, please. God is love. So the other characteristic of what we saw love is, is love is what? It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Love is God. God's not a feeling. God's a spirit. God's a person. Love also is what? An act of obedience. That we, again, love will cause us to obey. So love is not a feeling at all. And that's one of the things that gets misused a lot of times as it relates to love. Because guess how man-made love works? Man-made love, the Greek word is phileo, it's based on a feeling. If you do right by me, then guess what? I will do right by you. That's man-made love. But guess what God's love is? It's unconditional, as we'll see in a little bit. It's totally unconditional. It doesn't base what it does on what somebody else does. It does what's right no matter what somebody else does. Like Jesus said, if you walk in his love, you're going to treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. So please, 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 please realize to walk in love has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel. Why is that true? Why is love not a feeling? Well, first of all, because he clearly defines that God is love. So clearly God's not a feeling, right? He's a person. He lives in you, by the way. When he breathed his life into you, he gave you part of his DNA. So how do we know in relationship, which you could study all these far more in detail, how do we know love's not a feeling? How do we know that? Where do feelings come from? Come from your soul. Where's your love at? It's in your spirit. It's not a part of your feelings. It doesn't come from your soul. It'll change your feelings. When you choose to walk in love and do what the Bible says, it'll cause your feelings to line up with what love obviously sees and what love does. So this is clear. You and I got to get beyond this whole feeling thing about walking in love. And I'll guarantee you see this a lot in the area of unforgiveness. When you tell people to forgive somebody, you say, but you don't know what they did to me. So I can already tell you, you're going by your feelings. Yeah, it hurt. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Yeah, it was painful. But that doesn't mean you don't forgive. If you choose not to forgive, you choose to not let your faith work. 
I'm going to show you, uh, starting tonight, all the reasons why it's so significant to walk in love. So we'll see if you want to do Super Bowl tonight or you want to do church tonight. But I'm going to show you the significance of why walking in love is so critical because you're going to see scripture after scripture after scripture that shows you the benefit of walking in love. Right now, we're just defining it. So again, love does what? Love clearly is not a feeling because love is God himself. Then in the book of Ephesians, we found out very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, we found out that love does what? Speaks the truth. Speaks the truth. Talks about the leadership raising up the church, right? The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We don't want you to remain immature Christians, baby Christians any longer, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. But the way we do that is we speak the truth in love. So love speaks the truth, and it does it in love. doesn't do it demeaning you. The whole purpose of speaking the truth about something about your life is not to push you down, but to bring you up. So one of the greatest examples I could ever give you of the love of God in the life of Jesus that reveals this to us of how this love works, remember the woman that was caught in adultery that was brought to Jesus. Now, number one, these so-called religious leaders that brought her caught in adultery, how'd they catch her? They, one of them was either sleeping with her or they're window peeking. How can you say she was caught in adultery unless you yourself saw it or knew that it happened in relationship to personal experience? So they bring this woman caught in adultery. What really, from the perspective we see the scriptures, is she doing? She really is on her face before Jesus because she knows, guess what, under the Old Testament law, she's, she could be stoned and left for dead. So they're telling her, you know, hey, the law says stoner, what do you say? Aren't you great, grateful how Jesus deals with stuff? He squats down, he starts writing in the ground. You know, a lot of people speculate what he wrote. Let me tell you, let me help you. Doesn't tell you so you don't know. You can speculate all day long, but it doesn't tell you. One of the greatest things I believe is that Jesus clearly said, I'm not going to say anything except what I, what do you think he's doing? All right, Father, what do you want me to say here? He's taking a moment to hear from the Father. What do you want me to say here? And so the Father gives him the answer. And then he stands up, he says, okay, whichever you is without sin, throw the first stone. So if you're so sanctimoniously higher than she is, so much better than she is, which of you is without sin, throw the first stone, right? And they all dropped their stones. They were all holding them. (laughs) Think about that. They're standing there holding them. And they all dropped their stones. What does the Bible say? From the oldest, because you know young people think that they know far more than older people do, right? So the young know already, man, I've sinned. So they're dropping their, you know. And as they get down to the younger, the younger, yeah. (laughs) So they kind of finally get, and they all walk away. Now, this is the greatest example of love in the Bible that speaks the truth. Total example of love in the Bible. So then he turns to her and he says, where are your accusers? He's not pushing her down. He's asking a question. Where are, your con- where are your accusers that came to condemn you? She said, I don't know, Lord. I guess they've left. And he says, listen, you ready? Here's love. You ready? Neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to damn you. Guess what I'm here to do? Lift you up out of that lifestyle. Can I get a better amen? Here's the perfect picture of love, speaking the truth. I'm not here to condemn you. What's his next words? Go and sin no more. See, love doesn't hide the truth. Love doesn't look at a wrong somebody's doing and not deal with it. Because to not deal with it is to leave them in the wrong of what they're doing, to leave them in their filth and in their, in their bound state, you know, through Satan taking advantage of their life. Love speaks the truth to do what? Pick them up out of that. 
He wasn't condemning. I'm not here to condemn you. Condemn doesn't mean, by the way, let's, let's, let's throw this out here for a little side trail, right? There's a big difference between condemnation and conviction. Huge difference. You studied that yourself. Condemnation means to what? To be damned for eternity. To be condemned means to be damned. If you're born again, guess what you're not? Condemned. There is no condemnation. Come on, Romans 8, 1. For those who are in Christ Jesus, why? I'm not damned anymore. I'm blessed with new life. Can I get a better amen? But that don't mean as a believer, I don't ever experience conviction. Because if you do wrong, guess what you're going to feel? Convicted. Meaning what? I have a sense of guilt for what I've done that's wrong. Should I feel condemned? No. Now the devil will take advantage of that and oftentimes try to make you feel condemned. Like now you're damned. God can't help you. God wants something to do with you. God's mad at you. No. Jesus bore the punishment your sin deserved. Aren't you glad? So God's not damning you. God's trying to pull you out of what you're in. Conviction means I now know without a doubt I'm guilty for what I just did. That's wrong. If it's wrong, guess how you know you're convicted? I feel guilty about it. That's wrong. So what do you do? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn for that and do what's right in the sight of God. So when you go and talk to people about their sin, they say, you're condemning me. Guess what you can say? You can say the same thing Jesus did. Did he tell her to go and sin no more? What was he telling her? Stop living in adultery. Adultery is wrong. Don't keep living in adultery. Well, you're condemning me. No, I'm not condemning you. I'm not damning you. I'm telling you, come out of that lifestyle so you don't walk in condemnation down the road by obviously not turning to me and receiving what I have for you. Can I get a better amen? Say, love speaks the truth. So understand, love doesn't hide truth, folks. Love doesn't turn around and say, now listen, 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 listen. Listen, all you married couples. Listen carefully. Well, I don't want to tell my husband or I don't want to tell my wife the truth because they'll get mad. What are you going to do? Lie? I mean, if your spouse asked you something and now you must answer truthful or a lie, if you're going to lie about it, guess what you're doing? You're not walking in love. Yeah, but they're going to get mad. Okay, that's something they need to deal with. That's something that they need to address. But the point is, to lie is not good. Because love does what? Speaks the truth. What sets people free? Truth does. It may not free them if they get mad at you at the moment. But I will tell you what. You're going to keep yourself in bondage if you lie. Because the moment you walk away, guess what you're feeling in your heart? You're now feeling conviction for what you did wrong. Because you know you did wrong. Say, love always speaks the truth. So love never lies. God's love. God's love. God's love. God won't lie to you. He's not going to lie to you to protect your feelings. You listening? He's going to speak the truth to change your life so your feelings can change in a positive way and you can come out of that lifestyle. That's what he did with that woman caught in adultery. So love never lies. Love doesn't cover up truth. Love speaks the truth. Now I know there's people say, well, love covers a multitude of sin. That doesn't mean you don't tell people when they're in sin. Covering it up means I don't go public. Covering Covering up means I don't go to all the world now and tell them about all your sin. Love doesn't do that. That's called slander. I'm not supposed to be gossip. I'm not supposed to be out talking about your sins. Right? So that's what it means by love covering a multitude of sins. Love doesn't go and blot out to everybody else, you know, what all of your sins are. By the way, you're not supposed to be talking about other people's sins. Did you know that? 
Let me give you a powerful verse we're going to go over Wednesday night in our special service on Valentine's. You ready? James 5.16. Learn it and live it as a, as a married couple, as an individual believer relating to other people. James 5.16. Confess your faults to one another. Your faults. Not theirs. Confess your fault. Right? Well, honey, you did this again and you just keep doing it. The Bible didn't say I'm to confess her fault. Bible said I'm to confess mine. Well, what if they don't deal with theirs? Guess what? I'm not her dad. I'm her husband. I'm not here to father her. She has a dad. I had her dad one time correct me and say, you're not her father. Clear as a bell. And I said, you're right. And I left it going. I said, okay, she's your child. You deal with her. I was being honest. Because I'm not her dad. She's done the same for me. But understand this, you got to get this very clear. You and I have to learn the significance of understanding the fact that you and I are not going to turn around and take something of somebody else's lifestyle and then go blast it to everybody else on the planet. No, love says, guess what? I'm not going to go talk about those things publicly if I know about them. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell the truth as I'm talking to people. Well, what if people are asking me about that person's lifestyle? You have no reason to tell them. I said, you have no reason to tell them. You shouldn't be having such conversations with those people. Can I get a better amen? So understand that love very clearly does speak the truth. Love just doesn't do what? It doesn't go out and blot everybody else's stuff out there. Love does what? It confesses my own sin. James 5.16, confess your faults to one another. You ready? You ready? I'm not, the verse ain't done yet. Anybody know the rest of that verse? Pray for one another. What should I do? Don't confess their fault. Pray for them. Pray for one another. You listening? For the effectual fervent prayer avails much. Oh, if we would live by that in our marriages. I'm not going to confess your faults. I'll confess mine. Quit talking about your spouse's faults. Yeah, they got faults just like you do. What are you supposed to do? Acknowledge their faults? Nope. Supposed to deal with yours. What about relating to theirs? Pray for them. I, I, I said this to some people the other day. I said, you know, I know this for a fact. Christians really don't believe in the power of prayer as a whole. Don't, don't shout me down as I'm preaching good. Christians don't believe in the power of prayer as a whole. If they did, they'd do a whole lot more praying about situations in their life. If you really believe the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, guess what you'd do? You'd complain a lot less about situations in your life. You know what you'd do instead? You'd pray. You'd pray about them. But most Christians seriously don't believe in prayer, don't understand it. Because if you did and you believe the Bible, which I believe the Bible, how many believe the Bible? There's like half of you in the room. How many believe the Bible? So if you believe the Bible, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Effective means what? In line with the word. Right? Fervent means what? It's coming from your heart. You see, my purpose in praying for my spouse through difficult times wasn't the fact that I just simply wanted her to change on my behalf. I knew these things were hurting her life as well. That's right. From my heart, I wanted to see her not hurt in these areas of her life anymore and how that was affecting our relationship. It wasn't about what I wanted to get. It was about what I saw of how that was hurting her. Amen. If you're praying fervently, you're praying from your heart for the good of the other person. Amen. You're not praying for you. See, if you're praying for your spouse, but you're praying because you don't like what they're doing to you, you're praying for you. That's not fervent. <laughs> Fervent means I'm praying for them because I love them. I care about them. Yes. You still here? 
The effective, I'm in line with the word, fervent, it's coming from a heart, prayer of a righteous man or woman, person. Well, how do I qualify for the third part? Get born again. Because the moment you get born again, you're the righteousness of God. So you already got that one taken care of. Work on the effective and the fervent, and you'll avail much in prayer. So seriously, I, I oftentimes ask couples in situations they're going through, I say, how much time have you devoted to truly pray effectively for your spouse? Yes, yeah, about that quiet right there. So that tells me you probably haven't been doing that. And then you wonder why your marriage is going the way it's going. How about you start praying for one another seriously? Can I get a better amen? Uh, so again, very clearly, love does what? Speaks the truth. Say it. All right, 1 John 3. 1 John 3. We're talking also again, continuing on, about what God's love looks like. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Let's get another example of what that love looks like, okay? 1 John 3, 16 gives us another example. Watch this. By this we know love. So in other words, here's a definition. Here's a definition. How we know love. Because he did what? Laid down his life for us. Notice the statement. Underline it. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So here's another picture of how Jesus loved us and how we're supposed to love one another. You ready? I want you to write this down. This is significant. You could say, I'm to lay my life down for others. Let me explain in the context of that actual language of the wording there in the Greek what it refers to. You ready? Uh, this is Albert Barnes' commentary on that verse, powerful, that brings out the heart of what he's saying. Does, now, number one, let's just talk about this in relationship to the, what it looks like in the natural. He laid his life down for us. We're to lay down our life for the brethren. If you die for the brethren, how are you going to help the brethren? You're really not. So laying down our life here, although it would refer to the fact that if I'm doing what I know is right in the sight of God, which those disciples did, I may become a martyr. It could be included. But God really wants us to understand laying my life down for their brethren means I'm doing something in a way to help them. Can I get a better amen? So that relates to my, my marriage, to dealing with other people, etc. So here's Albert Barnes' commentary on verse 16. And this will help you understand the next characteristic of love. You ready? Yes. Write this down. Love gives its time. Love gives its time, care, labor, prayers, which we just talked a lot about, and substance. Love gives its time, care, labor, prayers, and substance. So another element of love, I lay my life down. But what does that mean? What does that mean I lay my life down? I give my time. I give my care. I show people that I care. I give my labor. I'm willing to do work for God. I'm willing to work in the kingdom. I'm willing to do whatever God needs me to do to labor to help, help reach other people. Help other people. I give my prayers. What do you think we do here every Monday night? That's an, that, that should be a labor of love. If you're doing it biblically, it should be a labor of love. You shouldn't be coming because, well, I don't want Pastor not to see me here on prayer night. That don't matter if I see you or not. Some people can't make it. But the whole point while we come is to do what? It should be a labor of love. We're giving ourselves to help others through prayer. And substance. Say substance. If you truly walk in love, guess what? It'll cost you substance. It'll cost you financially. My wife's cost me money. Anybody here married in the room have, have your spouse cost you money? 
Sure, man. She likes clothes, which I'm glad. I don't want to see her walking around naked. She likes food. I want to see her eat. Right? She needs a home. That's a, that co- There's a lot of cost in relationship to caring for somebody else. How many got kids? So you give of your substance. Can I get a better amen? So when he talks about laying your life down, if you want to write it that way, you can. But when Jesus said that you and I are to love one another as he loved us, guess what Jesus did? Jesus gave his time. Jesus gave his care. Jesus gave his labor. He gave his prayers. And he also gave substance. They fed the poor. That's what it means for me and you to lay our life down. So this is a great picture of what love is also, that you and I are people who understand that if we truly love others, guess what that means? We're willing to lay our life down, meaning be interrupted. That's right. Be interrupted. There's times in your life if you're going to obey God that clearly if you're going to help somebody else, you may not have planned to help that person that day. And in the midst of what you're doing on your heart, you believe it's what God wants you to do to help them. And therefore, you're going to have to do what? Rearrange your schedule. Change what you had planned. Amen? And I'll guarantee you, you got to be willing to show people also that you do what? That you care about them. That you truly do care about them. Actions do speak louder than words, by the way. you got to be willing to labor. you got to be willing to, if you truly walk in love towards the kingdom of God, guess what you're willing to do? You're willing to labor for the kingdom. You don't just come to hear sermons. Right? You come to be an active part of the body. You come to continue to learn to go out there how to do the work of ministry. To do a labor for God and witnessing to people and reaching people with the gospel. That's what love does, folks. That's what love does. So the characteristic here we're looking at in verse 16, love, if you want to say, lays down its life. It just simply means you're willing to put aside oftentimes what you may want to do to be able to do what? Help somebody else. Even when it comes to money, you might have had a plan for your money and then God may say, I want you to help this person. See, love is going to obey whatever God directs them to do and therefore even at times give up uh, things that maybe they wanted for what God wanted. Amen? Amen. In marriage, that's critical. If you're you're out to get your way in marriage, forget about your marriage working. Forget it. It ain't going to work. Now, the head... Headship role of the husband really has the primary responsibility, but women are supposed to walk in the love of God too. So if you love one another as Jesus loved us, how did Jesus love us? You ready? I didn't come to serve you. Is that what he said? It's not what he said. See now you're paying attention or not. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to, I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for you. Now, he clearly walked in the light of what God wanted him to do. He just didn't let people redirect his life. You can't do that. You can't let people redirect your life. You listening? I mean, you could have people who might think that they're directing you to do what God wants you to do. But if you know in your heart that ain't right, you don't obey that. You obey God. But you got to understand this. He was willing to do whatever the father needed him to do by coming and doing what? Serving. In marriage, most people get married for this reason. They want somebody, to, obviously in the case of maybe they just like having somebody around and don't want to be lonely, number one. If you're trying to get married to get rid of loneliness, you're going to be lonely after you get married because the truth is the only way you're going to get rid of loneliness is understand Jesus is all you need as it relates to loneliness. You shouldn't be lonely. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why would you be lonely? If you, I'll tell you how I know you're lonely if you're born again. I'll tell you how I know you're lonely because you're not walking close with God. If you're aware of his presence, you have no, you have no issues with loneliness. Right? But a lot of people get married. Here's why. A lot of people get married because you know what? A lot of guys do this. They get married because they want somebody to serve them. 
clean the house, do the dishes, do the laundry, take care of me. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Thank you, husbands, for all your amends about this. What did Jesus come to do? I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. Guess what you husbands are supposed to be doing? Serving your wife. That don't mean, again, just doing whatever she wants because that could lead you out of the will of God. Yes, no, maybe. But guess what? I come with a hard attitude in my marriage. I came to serve my wife. If you don't want to do that, don't get married. Because <laughs> that's what Jesus himself gave us a model of. 1 John 4, moving further into 1 John chapter 4. You still with me? Verse 10. So notice this statement. In this is love. So here we go. Here's another definition of the love of God or what it looks like, how Jesus loved us. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he did what? Loved us. Watch this. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to do what? So in the same manner of what verse 10 says that love did for us, we're supposed to do for one another. So let's unpack verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he what? So here's another characteristic of love, which we just referred to a minute ago. It's what? Unconditional. God's love is unconditional. He didn't wait for us to love him before he loved us. Right? Not that we love God, but that God did what? That he loved us. See, God's love is unconditional. It's, it's agape in the context or agapeo in some context of the verb form. It just means you don't put a condition on showing love to people. Not if you walk in love. So his love was unconditional. Second thing, notice this, and, so he adds to that definition of the context of love, and he sent his son also to be what? The propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. So first of all, this first definition from that verse, it's unconditional, but guess what else it is? It's merciful. Say God's love shows mercy. So God's love shows what? It shows mercy to people. What's that mean? So the word propitiation there means that you and I literally had Jesus stand in the gap for us where literally we deserve God's punishment and wrath for our sin. Jesus in stepping in and bearing our sin didn't just bear our sin. He bore the punishment our sin deserved. Is God still punishing you? No. Jesus bore that punishment. Now if Jesus did that for me, why would I punish others when they wrong me? Well, you know, my wife, my husband, they're not treating me very good. I'm going to give them the cold treatment. Oh, I'm going to give them the cold shoulder treatment. Oh, I didn't know you're supposed to punish your spouse because they're not loving you. Getting awful quiet on me. See, if you walk in unconditional love, then guess what you don't do? You don't punish people if they mistreated you or wronged you. Right? You know what you choose to do anyway? Love them. You choose to act the way love acts. Amen. Love doesn't deny a wrong, but love doesn't punish somebody. Now, if I'm a born-again child of God, and I am, and if I therefore receive the work of propitiation in my life, and I have, that means God's not punishing me for my sins, 1 John chapter 2, very clearly, even 1 John 1, 9, all the way through chapter 2. If, if I miss it, I confess my sin. He forgives, he cleanses. Of all sense of unrighteousness, but it goes on to tell me, I got to remember chapter 2, that I have an, a go-between, an, uh, an actual uh, uh, person who stepped in between me and God, 
who went in between us to bear my punishment, who is the propitiation for my sin. So if God's not punishing me for the sin I've committed, and he doesn't, well, why do bad things happen to believers when they sin? Because you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap what? Life. God's not punishing you. You're punishing yourself. You're punishing yourself. That'd be like standing, you know, out in your garage, take a gun, shoot your foot, right? And say, well, God, why did you punish me for pulling that trigger? I didn't, dummy. You pulled the trigger. You hurt yourself. I didn't hurt you. You listening? I didn't do the damage you did when you made the dumb decision to pull the trigger. Come on, somebody. So God's not punishing you for your sin. Question, if God doesn't punish me for my sin, why do I punish others? Why do I punish others when they wrong me? Who gave you the right to punish others? Sorry, kids, you're not off the hook. Parents have a right to discipline their children. That's not punishment, though. I've taught you this in raising kids. There's a big difference between discipline and punishment. You're not punishing, you're disciplining them. You listening? But understand that I'm not to punish other people by all of a sudden turning the cold shoulder, treating them differently than love would treat them. Why would you do that? Because you're walking in the flesh. So love does what? Love shows mercy. Mercy means what? Well, mercy means you're not going to get what you deserved. Right? Maybe they wronged you. Maybe they deserved some obvious results from that that aren't good, but you're not going to be the one to give it to them. Come on, somebody. Not if you're walking in love. Tell your neighbor, he's preaching better than your amen today. Go ahead, tell him. That is so important to understand. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll close here today. 1 Corinthians 13. You've got to understand love shows mercy. Love is unconditional. Quit responding back to people based on the fact that you feel they deserve to be punished for what they've done to you. How you treat them, what you say, what you do to them. No. No. Now, how do you understand? Just going through this again, definition of love. We all need to work on this some. What we'll get through in this part of our series in talking about love is we're going to not only talk about what all are the results of walking in love as we're going to start into tonight, but we're going to talk about how do you do it? How do you walk in love? It's one thing to know I'm to do it. But does the Bible teach me things I need to know to do so? Yes, it does. And a disciple needs to learn that understanding of how to walk in love so they can wind up doing what? Being a disciple, showing love towards one another. So 1 Corinthians 13 is truly without a doubt what I would say the ultimate definition of love, and therefore God is love, the ultimate, de- ultimate definition of what? God himself. And that love you and I have within us. Say it's in there. So in 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 4, we're going to read down here through verse 8. Verse 4, love does what? It suffers long. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not, verse 5, behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in what? The truth. 7, love does what? Bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. If you walk in love, you're not going to walk in defeat. You're going to walk in victory. It might feel like defeat at the time because you're not able to respond back in a way you want to carnally and fleshly, but in truth, you're going to walk in victory. But see, you're walking in victory the way God says you walk in victory, not the way you think. 
And that's why God's ways, the Bible says, are not our ways. But guess what they are? They're higher. They're much higher. So let me walk you through this in the Amplified because the Amplified is what I encourage you, the original Amplified, I guess I should say now. Kathy tells me the classic Amplified. I guess there's a new one out now that's not too good, which I don't have or pay attention to. But the Amplified here brings out really the definition of these truths a little better. There's eight things he told you here in further defining love. Uh, I, you probably won't have time to write them all down. We actually have printouts of these. We did have in the back back there. You could probably get it later. But I'll walk, these, I'll walk through with these with you real quick in defining love. We'll pick this back up tonight, and we'll talk about it further. But if I'm to walk in love, how many of you think I, I need to know how these things obviously work in my life? Amen. The greatest thing I could ever tell you, what Brother Hagin used to challenge his church on, every time he got in a situation where his church wasn't walking in love and there was problems in the church, guess what he would do? Teach on love. He would, he would take him to these verses here. He'd say, I want everybody in my church next 30 days. If you're, I'm not telling you this from me. I'm telling you from God. If you don't do this, you're not obeying God. The next 30 days, you take these verses right here, verses 4 through 8, and you read them every day and you meditate on them. Read them to yourself and meditate on them every day for 30 days. He said at the end of 30 days, it was amazing how different people were. And all of a sudden, we started seeing things flowing in our church again. Gifts of the Spirit, the power of God. See, a lot of people don't understand a lack of love is hindering all this stuff. Thank you for all your amends about that. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 starts off with what? Love suffers long. So I've got a definition for each one of these based on what Scripture teaches us these actual things are. Love suffers long means it's patient toward all men with humble submission to the will of God. So if you leave that last part off, you'll miss out on the power of what love suffering long means. Love suffers long. It is patient toward all men. How? With humble submission to the will of God. You're not going to be patient with all men without humble submission to what you know is God's will of how you're supposed to treat them. If you don't humbly submit to the will of God as to how you're to treat them, guess what you're not going to be? You're not going to be patient with all men. Right? You're going to become impatient. And you're going to do what you want to do and not what God wants you to do. So love suffers long. It is patient toward all men with humble, humble submission to the will of God. Number two, he said love is kind. Say love is kind. This means it is tender and compassionate. It is tender. What would tender mean? It means that it's very aware of well, obviously, that of the person's situation, that of the person themselves. In essence, a way to say it would be, I'm not focused on me, I'm listening to them, I'm focused on them. For love to be kind, it is tender and compassionate, and it creates trouble for no one. Amen. If you're kind, you don't create trouble for other people. So love, in the context of being kind, is both tender and compassionate, and it creates trouble for no one. Number three, love does not envy. It does not envy. What do you mean it does not envy? This is important to understand. It is not grieved because of what another person may possess. If you envy somebody, you are in essence, you're actually walking in a form of being grieved because of what somebody else possesses. You're not happy about it. You're grieved about it. Envy, do not love does not envy. It is not grieved because of what another person possesses, both naturally or spiritually. Naturally or spiritually. So somebody else all of a sudden gets promoted in a way spiritually, and you're upset because you didn't. That's not what love does. 
Somebody else finally gets blessed with their dream home. And you're mad and upset and ticked off at God. Why haven't I got mine yet? No, love rejoices. It doesn't envy. It's grateful for what the other person has had come to pass in their life. Four, love does not parade itself. So get your horn put up. Don't be tooting your own horn, walking around, parading yourself. Love does not parade itself. You ready? It does not desire to be noticed or applauded, but wants God to be the all in all. It does not desire to be noticed or applauded, but wants God to be all in all. Now, you could walk in this not, and do so unwillingly. That you don't realize things you do is to try to draw attention to you. One of the reasons people do things to draw attention to them is because, guess what? They're insecure about themselves. That insecurity hinders their ability to walk in the love of God. They don't even realize they're doing it. They do things to constantly try to promote themselves in a way that makes them feel good about them. And it's not because they're, quote, unquote, trying to make themselves look better than you because they really are. It's because they have to do that to feel good about themselves. Hope you got all that. So we had a guy in our church years ago. None of you know him. I mean, none of you in this church would even remember him. But he spent some time with me doing some work at the church a long time ago, back when we were in Keller, one of our first uh, churches in Keller. And he began to tell me, he said, you know, I played for the San Francisco 49ers. I said, really? He said, yeah, I wasn't like a full-time position player, but I was just on the team, you know, as like an added person on the team, help out with practices and stuff like that. I got curious. I looked it up. He wasn't ever on the team. I didn't bring it up for a while, but then I just thought, I wonder if he really was. So I went and looked up all the team members of the years he said he was on the team. They show everybody. I mean, all the way down to the equipment managers and stuff. He wasn't ever on the team. He used to tell me this stuff about him all the time. And I was learning this as I was actually dealing with this guy at the time about this whole aspect of wanting to find value and worth based on what I do because I feel worthless to myself. I'm not getting my value and worth from the creator. I'm getting it from the creation. And in this case, what I do. One day we were driving to go get a bunch of wood for a project in our church. And I turned to him and I said, why do you tell all these lies? Huh? <laughs> I said, I love you, brother. I'm just asking a simple question. Why do you tell all these lies? What do you mean? You never played for the 49ers. I looked it up. His head went down. I said, you don't have to drop your head with me. It's okay. Pick your, pick your head up. Pick your... I said, I know why you do what you do. You brag to everybody in our church like you're somebody big, and I'm going to tell you why you do it. Because you are somebody who truly has not found their value and worth in the creator. You're trying to find your value and worth in the creation, and the only way you can do that is try to make yourself look better than others. Not because you're trying to put them down, because you're trying to feel good about you. Man, tears started rolling down his face. I said, I bet I can already pick out some things about your past life. I bet you didn't have a good father. I didn't even have a dad in my life. And I said, yeah, so you, you lost, you didn't get any of this affirmation growing up. So now you're still trying to get it from people instead of the only one that can give it to you. And that's God. Right. See, love doesn't parade itself. It doesn't desire to be noticed or applauded. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't do that. But you got to really examine your life and say, Holy Spirit, do I do that? Do I try to draw attention to me because I want, it, I want people to notice me to feel good about me? See, most people aren't trying to get people to notice them because they're somebody that really is, they think, bigger than you. No, it's because they're insecure. That's right. I'm not saying all of them, but you know why a lot of actors wind up in Hollywood as actors? Because they want to feel better about themselves. So they try to live outside of themselves in a role where they can get attention from others to look how good they are. Because they can't live up to the person that they grew up to be. I'm telling you what actors have admitted themselves. 
So you don't parade yourself by what? By trying to be noticed or applauded. Everything you do should be the intent. And you don't have to go around, I, you know, I fell into this for a while. People come up and say, that was a good message, you know, after church. I say, well, you know, it wasn't me, it was God. You know, come on, man. If you're anointed to God, they know that. And one time God said, you're being too false. You're, being, you're walking in a form of false humility now, thinking that they're not giving God the glory for that. They're acknowledging the gift of God on your life. Just say, thank you. I appreciate that. Walk away and then say, thank you, Lord, that you gave me that message. Don't take credit for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I studied a lot of hours, man. And I'm telling you, I'd, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be getting any word in this church, praise God. Now, see, obviously that's wrong. I wasn't doing that, but I was so far to the other spectrum. If somebody acknowledges something you do good that was God, just say, thank you. Just say thank you and they'll walk away and say, Lord, you know that was all you. That was all you. That wasn't me. Number five, love is not puffed up. Love is not puffed up. Sorry, Cheeto fans. Love is not puffed up. <laughs> it's a little joke in there. It's not inflated. Listen, it's not inflated with a sense of its own importance. It's not inflated with a sense of its own importance, for it knows that it deserves nothing of benefit given by God. That's critical. Yeah. I want to come back on these tonight because I'm not going to have time to do them justice. It's not puffed up, meaning inflated with a sense of its own importance, knowing that it deserves nothing of benefit given by God. If you're puffed up, guess what you won't do? You won't receive from God because you don't realize, I don't deserve it, but he gave it to me anyway. Amen. Puffed up means, well, I deserve to get healed. Look how many hours I prayed. No. See, that's not love. Nope. And your faith won't work. Amen. Can I get a better amen? See, most people think puffed up, you're just arrogant. Now, that's kind of more so the parading itself. The puffed up person here literally is basing what they get now, what they receive in life based on whether they did it or not. No, we realize that I don't deserve anything of benefit from God. I get it because I'm a child of God. If you want to put a little note by love is not puffed up, that was the second prodigal son. The second son in the prodigal son story. He's the one who stayed home. Right. And was mad and didn't know, well, why, how come I don't have a party going? Because you never asked. Right. You've always been my son. You could have had it any time. But he was mad because he felt he was deserving of better because of what he had done. No, you're, you deserve what you get from me, not because, you have what, not because of what you've done, but because you're my son. I said it wrong. You don't deserve it. You get it because you're my son. I love you. Six, love does not behave rudely. I'm going to have to rush now because I want to finish this up and get back to, to go back over these tonight. Love does not behave rudely. It does not act out of its place or character. Does not act out of its place or character showing forth good manners, never intentionally offending others. So if you get nothing else about love not behaving rudely, it never intentionally offends others. That doesn't mean you won't offend somebody. And sometimes you don't even obviously intend to do it. And sometimes people just take it as offense. Right. Could you read that one more time? And you didn't intend to do it, but it's not like you intentionally tried to offend them by something you said, but they took it as offense. Right. So again, love does not behave rudely. It does not act out of its place or character. If I'm not behaving rudely, what am I not doing? I'm not acting out of my place or character as a child of God. Amen. Amen. I'm walking out my character as a child of God, as who I really am as a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, showing forth what? Good manners and never intentionally offending others. Because if you walk out of the new character that you have inside you, guess what you're going to do? You're going to show forth good manners and you're not going to intentionally 
offend other people. Now, Jesus offended people, but he didn't do it intentionally. Truth is, he didn't offend them, honestly. He spoke the truth. They got offended by what he said because they weren't doing it. Can I get a better amen? Seven, love does not seek its own. Now, this is kind of long, so if you don't get it all, we'll come back tonight. Love does not seek its own. You ready? It's never satisfied, never, never satisfied except in the welfare and salvation of all. First sentence. It, it, it is never satisfied except in. Love doesn't seek its own. What is it, what it, when, does it, when is it satisfied? It is satisfied in the welfare and salvation of all. It's never satisfied except in the welfare and salvation of what all. No true Christian is for his own happiness alone. No true Christian is for his happiness alone, not caring about the outcome of those in the world. If that was you, you weren't, you're not walking in love. If the focus is in my outcome alone and I don't really care about anybody else, then you're not walking in love. Because love knows there's a lot of hurting people in the world that need help from God. And they're not going to get it without us. Last one, number eight. Love is not provoked. Say it's not provoked. You ready? <laughs> I don't know if I should give you this one before lunch or not. Are you sure? You really want it? I'll tell you tonight. You want it or not? It's not irritated. Immediate definition of provoke. It's not irritated. It's not made sour or bitter. Love is not irritated, sour, or bitter. It's calm, serious, patient, restraining one's temper and feelings. Love is calm, serious, patient, restraining one's, restraining one's temper and Feelings. Love isn't not, quote unquote, serious in the sense that obviously you, you are serious about your life. You're living it on purpose. You know what you're doing. Some people are just happy-go-lucky. Who cares what we do? It doesn't matter. Let's make no plans. No, God's a planner. So love is calm, but it's also what? Serious and it's patient. And it restrains one's temper and feelings. How does love, how does love restrain one's temper and feelings? Come on, you've been taught good in this church. You're dominated by your spirit, man. Where, where is one's temper and feelings? In your soul. Are you to be dominated by your soul? Mind, will, and emotions? No. What's supposed to dominate you now that you're born again? Your spirit, man. Well, what's the first fruit of your recreated human spirit? Love. So if you're walking in love, guess what you're not doing? You're not in a position where you're allowing being overtaken. It doesn't mean you don't still have a temper and have bad feelings. If somebody says something so nice, something to you, like I'm going to say something right now to all of you that's not nice. No, I won't do it. If, if somebody said something about you that wasn't nice, does that mean you're not going to have your feelings hurt? No, you're going to, your feelings get hurt. Why? Because it's part of your soul. But you know what love does? Doesn't let that rule you. You know what your spirit man does? Your spirit man overrules that and says, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know it. I get it. Your spirit man tells your soul and your flesh says, I know you want to punch back. Oh, I know you want to hurt him in the worst way. But that's not you. You're not a soul, you're a spirit. So you soul, listen to me. Amen? And you soul will not do what? You will not release your temper and your feelings. No, you'll restrain them. You'll restrain them. So again, it's not irritated. All you irritated people need to start walking in love. <laughs> See, I asked you all to hear it before lunch. No pitchforking. Yeah, that's you, honey. Yeah. 
Here, let me give you another scoop of that. Oh, that's funny, man. So you see one face. I see many, man. You don't even know what goes on. You, you have no idea what goes on most of the time in the preaching of a message, man. The looks people give other people. The little whispers that go on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Happens all the time. And see, if you don't walk in the anointing, you'd be wondering, so like, are they mad at me now? Are they upset what I said? No, I walk in love. I don't care what they think. Praise the Lord. Who cares? <laughs> so it's not irritated. Tell, tell your neighbor, hi there, non-irritated one. Because <laughs> provoke, me, provoke means you easily get irritated. Right? So if you easily get irritated, why would you not be walking in love? You're not dominated by your spirit. You're dominated. By your old fleshly nature. See, you cannot walk dominated by your old fleshly nature and walk in love. And this is why on the heels of this series, we're going to go back into learning spiritual development and maturity. Because a lot of Christians, when you talk about spiritual development and maturity, most seriously, most today, go ask the average Christian you know and say, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? Well, let's say you love God, you go to church. Some of them might even say you give to the work of God. Those kind of things. But you know what? Honestly, those are just byproducts of spiritual maturity. That's not spiritual maturity. What's spiritual maturity? You're ruled and dominated by your spirit man. Who's perfect? Who's been recreated in the image and likeness of God? And there's a way you can develop that guy to become stronger than any other part of you to where he dominates you, including walking in the love of God. So this is an incredible understanding of the definition of the love of God. And when Jesus said, you're to love one another as I have loved you, guess what? You better learn. Oh, it's a lot to learn, Pastor. Well, okay. You have a choice. I mean, if you're going to be a disciple of somebody, don't you know it's going to take some learning? Sure it is. Yeah. It, it, I wanted to be a disciple in the worst way of, a, of, of bull riders that knew what the heck they were doing. Well, guess what? It took a lot of learning. It took a lot of challenge. It took a lot of, of uh, time in my life to give myself to learn what they know and to develop in it and understand it so I could do it as well. If you're not willing to do that, you're not going to be able to walk, in as a, uh, walk as a disciple of Jesus and you'll miss out on a great way to live life. Amen. But that's not us in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand your feet. We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.